You know, there are certain years that you always remember. You associate those years with certain events in your life. Uh, For me, I can think of the year that I met my wife, the years that my children were born. Uh, 2013 will always be one of those watershed sort of years for me. And I'll remember it as the year that I made a decision I chose to believe in the resurrection. I know that may be an odd thing to to say, and and to be fair, I had made that decision years earlier as well. I believed in Jesus years before that. I I professed my faith that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and that he rose from the dead. Uh, I, I know what the Word of God has to say about that. I know John 11, Jesus declares, I am the resurrection and the life. I know that passage. I've heard a lot of sermons preached on that particular text. In fact, I've preached quite a few sermons on that passage and on the resurrection of Jesus. But I guess what I'm saying is is reading it, okay, that's one thing. Even preaching on those verses, well, that's that's another thing. But, But to actually believe those words... To place your trust and, and, and your hope and your faith in those words is, is another thing altogether. You see, 2013 was uh, the year that we lost my father-in-law. It was about two years before that, Sonny's father, his name was Alan Shates. He was diagnosed with ALS. It's a disease for which, as many of you probably know, there's no known cure. And that year was difficult as we watched Alan and we watched his health continue to deteriorate. Uh, We began to do a lot of praying and and we prayed that the Lord would just, um, well, we just prayed that the end would come quickly. And God was merciful and he answered that prayer and for that we're thankful. But as we watched this this man we all loved, as we watched his, his life slowly ebb away, I began to ask myself a lot of questions. I began to ask do I really believe all this resurrection stuff? And when you're faced with the, the prospect of losing someone you love, I, I think that kind of question comes naturally. And many of you have been there before. Some of you are there even right now. And in the wake of, of grief and loss, we, we find ourselves facing those kinds of questions. Do I really believe in this resurrection stuff? Do I believe in the one who says, I am the resurrection and the life? And we know this, don't we? Because believing in those words, that can make all the difference. That's what I want us to spend our time thinking about and talking about here today. When we believe in Jesus, when we place our faith in him, as we've been talking about now for several weeks in this series on daring faith, when we faith in Christ to this degree, then we, we, according to the word of God, we no longer grieve as those who have no hope. There's, there's tremendous hope that comes when we place our trust in Jesus as, again, who he claims to be, the resurrection and the life. So we believe in someday, we believe in the promises of God that will, that will be fulfilled when we are all gathered together then in that beautiful, blissful scene of the end. But we also believe this, don't we? We believe that there are some promises, there are some some blessings, some benefit to the abundant life that Jesus offers in the present that speaks to us even now. We don't believe just in someday, but we, we believe in the power of that eternal life that he offers even today in the present. Because if we have experienced new life in Christ, then we can no longer garb ourselves in the grave clothes that mark our previous experience 
So to believe in Jesus as the resurrection, to believe in him as the source of life, has eternal significance in where eternity is played out for us, but it also has such a bearing on the way in which we live and think and act in the very present. Believing in those words helps me to to live in light of the words that Jesus speaks in our passage of Scripture today. We're going to be looking at John 11, and at the end of this this beautiful text, this story that many of us have heard for a long time, we hear these words from Jesus when he says, take off the grave clothes. And believing in Jesus as the resurrection and the life, here's what I found in, in my life. I found that those words, that placing my faith and my trust there, and the one who spoke those words, it gives me the freedom to choose to do exactly what the Lord commands here, to take off those grave clothes. I'll be honest, there are times in my life when I find those grave clothes, the grave clothes of, of grief and despair and pain, I find those, those clothes draped over my shoulders from time to time because it's just natural you lose someone you love, it's just natural to, to feel that sense of pain and loss, especially around certain anniversaries or certain times of the year. But today I want us to hear these words, because in these words is a rich promise that Jesus offers us a new way of life, a new perspective, new clothing, if you want to put it that way. The opportunity to really take off those grave clothes and to trust in the one who says he is the resurrection and the life. So today we're going to focus on the story of a man whose name means God is my help. And I doubt that Lazarus knew the full truth of his name until this day when he had the opportunity to take off the grave clothes. We're going to read his story. We're in John chapter 11. And if you want to turn in your Bibles, we'll, we'll start reading there in just a moment. At the the beginning of John 11, at the beginning of this chapter, uh, John tells us that Lazarus is sick. He lives in a town called Bethany. It's really a suburb of Jerusalem. It's two miles outside the, the walls of Jerusalem. And his sisters are Mary and Martha. And they send word to Jesus that Lazarus is sick. They say, Lord, the one you love is sick. So not just this story, but the rest of the Gospels tell us that this is a family that that's special to Jesus. This is a family that means a lot to our Lord. But when he hears that Lazarus is sick, Jesus does something that I think strikes us as, as a little strange. He doesn't come running immediately. And that's where we pick up this story in the beginning of John 11. Look with me in verses 4 through 6. When he heard this, he being Jesus, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory that God's Son may be glorified through it. Let's just pause right there. Jesus is right, of course. He always is. But he says that this sickness will not end in death. Now, we have to reflect here because we, those of us who know how this story goes, we know that, that death is a part of this story, right? But no, Jesus says that this, this sickness will not end in death, but rather this sickness will go through death. It'll go through the valley of the shadow of death, if we would like to put it that way. But the story of Lazarus doesn't end there. No, this story continues through death. It passes through death, but but also, more importantly, to what's on the other side of death. And in particular for Lazarus, what is on the other side of death is new life 
in Jesus. So Lazarus and his story, he just, just like David says in the 23rd Psalm, he has to go through that valley of the shadow of death. He has to go through that dark place. But as David reminds us, we can do that. We can do that and fear no evil because we know the one who goes with us. That the Lord who is our great shepherd goes before us. And I like to think that's part of what's happening here in the story of Lazarus. Fresh off the heels of Jesus teaching about what it means for him to be the good shepherd. No, this, this illness will not end in death, but it goes through it, Jesus says. And then the next verse, Jesus loved Martha and her sister, who we know as Mary, and Lazarus, yet... When he heard that Lazarus was sick, look at this, he stayed where he was two more days. I think this is also an important detail. And I think this detail helps us understand everything that follows. And I think there are some of us here today who probably need to hear this more than anything else, okay? Right up front, in the beginning of this story, John tells us this important point that Jesus loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And John doesn't want that ever to be in question for us as we read this passage. But, in spite of that, Jesus loves this family, and yet, look what happens. Lazarus still suffers. Lazarus loses his life. Jesus loves Mary and Martha, and yet they still grieve. When we find them in this passage, they are hurting Tears streaming down their face. But John reminds us, Jesus loves them. And I think this is the point that we, some of us need to hear today, maybe more so than anything else, is this, that God's love toward us is unwavering, even in the wake of pain and grief. There are times in our lives, we we go through this, this adversity, we go through pain we go through grief we go through challenging circumstances of one kind or another and whenever those things come what what happens oftentimes for us is is we begin to make assumptions we begin to wonder okay I, i thought i was playing by the rules i thought i did everything the lord wanted me to do and yet now i'm facing this circumstance does that somehow mean that god doesn't love me i i'd be willing to bet that countless times over the years Gary's had that conversation with, pe- with, with people, the same as me, we, people who want to know, okay, what did I do wrong? Does God not love me any more than this? Because my circumstances seem to indicate that I've done something wrong or that he doesn't love me anymore. We can extrapolate from this text. That is not the way it works, folks. The Word of God says Jesus loved Lazarus and Martha and Mary, and yet he did not rush to their side, to take away their pain. No. He's working towards something that I think is is more redemptive in scope, something that is a sign that points to something far deeper, that points to the story that is taking place in his life, the death, burial, and resurrection through which we all find life. But we should not make this assumption that that if I'm going through some sort of difficult, hard circumstance, if I'm going through pain, I'm going through adversity, that 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 somehow is an indicator that God doesn't love me. That is not the gospel truth. Jesus loves this family, and yet they have to endure heartache. And the same could be said of our own lives as well. 
So way back in John 2, we read about Jesus, and, and he goes to a wedding, and the, they, they run out of wine, and so he takes the ordinary water, and he turns it into something extraordinary, and that's a sign pointing to what he's going to be doing in his ministry. So we've seen Jesus on the front end of his ministry. He kind of crashes the wedding, and we see what happens there. Well, now, now we see Jesus, and he shows up at a funeral. <laughs> and in the same way, he takes the, the, this funeral, which is a, a setting of deep pain and grief, but when Jesus shows up, it's transformed into something, a cause for celebration. So let's look now, let's skip down to verse 17 in John 11, and we'll read through verse 22 together here. Upon his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in their loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. By the time he arrives in Bethany, Lazarus has been dead. He's already been in the tomb for four days. Uh, In such a a warm climate like the, the ancient Near East, a dead body would decompose rather quickly. So it was pretty commonplace that the burial would take place uh, pretty soon after, after the death. And the scholars note that, that one of the significant factors here is that uh, this, this period of four days, it would have ruled out any sort of uh, accidental burial of Lazarus, you know, that uh, maybe they thought he was dead, but he really wasn't, and so they went to the trouble of, of burying him only to find out that he's really alive, you know, surprise, <laughs> they say that's not the case, that's not what's happening here, we've gone beyond the point of time where that could even be feasible or possible, he has been in the ground for four days, and obviously by this point in time, the body would have begun to decompose. So when Martha hears that Jesus is on his way, she does something rather interesting. She leaves home. She goes and meets him. Now, if you know anything about Martha's story, you know it's probably pretty difficult for her to leave home. What is Martha known most for in the gospel? When we think about Mary and Martha, you know, Martha's always the one in, you know, ladies' Bible class you don't want to be, I'm guessing, right? Because, you know, Mary is the one who sits at the feet of Jesus, and she gets all the the credit for this. And Martha's the one who's, you know, she's known as being kind of this this kitchen busybody, right? She's the one busy with all the food preparations. Uh, Somebody's got to fix the meal, right? So she's in the kitchen taking care of all that. And so we, we sort of remember her as kind of like being too busy to go and and listen to Jesus or to sit at his feet and and whereas Mary gets all kind of the credit Uh, and that's fair that's part of her story but here we see a different side of of Martha we find her leaving home and she goes specifically to, to, to to meet with Jesus and to talk with him and I find it really fascinating because Martha has this unique opportunity She has a chance to do something that I suspect many of us have wanted to do. She has a chance to talk directly to God in her pain. She has a chance to go directly to Jesus in her grief and in her pain and to say what is on her heart and to say it directly to him. Have you ever wanted that opportunity? Have you ever hurt so much That you just wished that you had an audience with the Lord. That you could stand before the throne of God and say what's in your heart. To to, to ask the questions that you have. To just 
take your pain before God. I suspect several of us in here have had that experience, or maybe even, even now that's your experience. And Martha comes before the Lord, and she says, I think rather pointedly, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. If you'd have been here, Lazarus would be here. And again, I wonder how many of us have, have said things like that to the Lord. Lord, if you had been where you said you would be, this wouldn't have happened. When I was less mature in my faith, I said things like that to the Lord. But maybe we shouldn't be too hard on Martha. Maybe we should cut her some slack and cut ourselves a little bit of slack here too because, because yes, she's pretty pointed there with God and she, she, she has a, a, a conversation with the Lord there about, about what's in her heart, but she immediately turns and says to Jesus also this, but even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. She's honest about how she feels. She says as much to Jesus, if you'd been here, I believe that you would have acted to preserve the life of my brother. She believes that. She has no problem telling the Lord how she feels. She also says this, even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Even now. Those are two important words, right? And it's as if she's saying, look, you weren't here and Lazarus is gone, but you're here now. (laughs) And God will listen to you I know that. Look at how Jesus responds in the, next few, in the next few verses. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And then this is the question. It's a question for all of us, not just for Martha. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. So here we find Jesus having yet another theological conversation with a woman in the Gospel of John. And Jesus says to to Martha, okay, your brother will rise again. And based on her response, I'm not quite sure that Martha understands what Jesus is getting at. I think she hears Jesus saying something along the lines of the the things that we say to one another when we're grieving, when we try to comfort one another. We say things like, you know, he's in a better place. Or we say things like, you know, you'll see him again someday or you'll see her again someday. We say these sorts of things to to, to comfort each other and to give a a little bit of hope in those moments of, of, of very acute pain. So when Jesus says, your brother will rise again, Martha, she replies by saying this, yes, yes, I know he'll rise again in the, in the end. Yes, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection in the, in the last days. She's basically affirming what the Pharisees taught. The Sadducees didn't believe in a, in a bodily resurrection. They actually kind of taught against that. And the Pharisees, on the other hand, their view, as best we can tell, was a little more mainstream, and they, they taught that there, there would be a resurrection. So, so she's just kind of affirming that. She's saying, yes, I, I know what I've heard in, in Sunday school. He'll rise again in the last day. But, but that's not where Jesus is going with that conversation at all, right? He's not trying to placate her. Uh, and he's definitely not trying to like postpone her hope into some, some far yet to be realized horizon. No, what Jesus wants to know is he wants to know what she believes right now. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever believes in me will live. And then he says this, do you believe this, Martha? It's such a powerful question. Again, we've been talking about during this whole series that faith is a verb in John's gospel. So he's saying, do you faith this? Do you faith in this? Do you put your trust in this, Martha? And she replies, yes. She says, I believe it. I believe that you're the Messiah. I believe that you're the Son of God. I believe God will listen to you and give you whatever it is you want. So tell me again, why is Martha remembered as a kitchen busybody? (laughs) This is her big moment, isn't it? This is the big moment for all of us. May we all answer that question as honestly and heartfelt, the same way that, that Martha does. May her words be on our lips. Because, folks, that's the question. Do you believe it? Do you believe in all this resurrection stuff? It's easy to say it from a pulpit on Sunday morning. I'll tell you that. It's a lot easier to say it here than it is standing at the graveside of someone you love. But the real question, the real litmus test is, what do you believe? Where are you putting your faith? Where is your trust? Is it in Jesus? Because if so, that changes everything. It changes everything for Martha. It changes everything for us. You know, Martha's the real hero of this story, aside from Jesus. Jesus is always the hero of the story, right? But aside from Jesus, Martha's the hero here. It's not Lazarus. Stuff just happens to Lazarus. You know, he's the guy who died and lived to tell about it, but he doesn't have a single line in this whole story, you know? But it's Martha who stands there in that moment and answers this question this way, even in her pain. Maybe we say it this way, especially in her pain and in her grief. She clings to the truth about Jesus and his his identity. Mary, meanwhile, is at home. And she is uh, likely engaged in this Jewish practice of of sitting and mourning. It's also called sitting shiva. Uh, Shiva is the Hebrew word for seven. So the common practice uh, is for uh, following a death would be for for a, a Jewish person to stay at home, to sit there at home, to sit in mourning for, uh, for a week, for seven days. And when you would sit shiva, you would clothe yourself in black, or even if you didn't wear black completely, you would have uh, an article of, you know, maybe tied around your, your, your arm, you know, a black band to represent this hole in your heart, that the darkness of death had enveloped you as a family. And you would sit in, on, on a low, uh, in a low stool, or maybe even a box, You'd kind of sit at this low place to sort of signify how you had been brought low by your grief and by your pain. And so when John tells us that Mary is at home, it's very likely that she is at home sitting shiva. She is in mourning. And it was, it was kind of a, a week-long visitation where loved ones would come and sit with you at home. And so Mary is likely sitting with these friends and family there. So Martha comes back to the house, tells Mary what's happened, that Jesus is in town. And so now it's Mary's turn. And she goes, and she speaks with Jesus. Look in verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The same thing that Martha has said. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then the one everybody knows, Jesus wept. 
Mary reiterates Martha's comments. She said, Lord, if you'd have been here, he wouldn't have died. And it says that Jesus was deeply moved and troubled. Okay, so two, two verbs there, two words. Jesus is deeply moved and Jesus is troubled. Uh, the first one of those, that he's deeply moved. They say that uh, the, the word scholars look at that and they say, you know, that, that word that's used there, it has a little sense of, of indignation to it. That when, when John says that Jesus is deeply moved, that there's a little undercurrent of maybe anger involved there. It's a word that's used to describe a very, very strong kind of visceral emotion. The word has a connotation with the Hebrew word for thunder. So in, in a very real way, there's something that kind of triggers in Jesus. When he sees Mary weeping, she falls down, and all the mourners are with her, and that just the magnitude, the enormity of that pain and that grief, there's something that kind of triggers in Jesus. And he's a little upset. He hurts for them. Maybe he's angry at the situation, but there's a little bit of a, a thunder bolt that kind of goes through Jesus, literally. There's kind of this, this something thunderous kind of resonates in his heart when he sees that, okay? So that's the first word. And then when it says that Jesus is troubled, that's an, a word to express emotional uh, pain. It's, it's, he's distraught, he's, he's disturbed, he's hurt by the fact that she is so emotional and that she is hurt. So we have these two words that, that come together to describe the, the most strong kind of emotion, the most strong kind of human experience possible. And I find that fascinating, that even the one who says that he is the resurrection and the life could be so grieved over the loss of a good friend. And this is where we come across, again, the, the shortest verse right? If you ever played Bible Bowl, you know this one, right? Jesus wept. Everybody uh, loves, loves that one. Uh, it's the shortest verse in the Bible, but I, I challenge you to come up with one that is, that is deeper. Because the profound depth of that short little verse, that the eternal Son of God, who stood outside the bounds of time when time was created, the one who is the resurrection and the life, that, that human suffering could move his heart to that degree that he would weep right there when we weep. Just think about it. That earthly pain moves the heart of God to that degree. That's, that's something that, frankly, is amazing. When we weep, according to this, when we weep, God weeps. And when we hurt Folks, our pain thunders in the very heart of God. And if this passage ended right here, even if we didn't get to the glorious ending that we're working toward, if the passage just stopped right there, it would be a word for us to know that Jesus joins us in our pain to this degree, that he's willing to set Shiva with us, that he's willing to weep when we weep. The book of Romans tells us as the church that we weep with those who weep, that we rejoice with those who rejoice. And I've said to you before, the only reason I think that that's a command from God is because that's who God is. God wants his children to model the behavior that he embodies. We weep with others when they weep because that's what God does. When our brothers and sisters have godly cause for joy to rejoice in the Lord, we rejoice because that's who God is. And we see this right here in the person of Jesus. As he weeps with his friends, he hurts with us when we hurt, and that pain thunders in his heart. As hard as it might be to fathom, I hope that you hear that as a word of good news today, because I believe it is. The final part of the story is important. 
This is the sign to which all of this is building. It's, it's, it's a sign that points beyond even this passage to, to what God the Father will do in the life of Jesus. Let's close by looking at these verses, starting in verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Martha just can't help herself, right? She's just so practical. She has, she has to say this, Lord, it's going to smell bad. And Jesus replies, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And then Jesus looked up and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, so that they might believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. His hands and feet were wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth was around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Jesus brings Lazarus back to life with just a simple prayer and a command. So Jesus prays, not by bowing his head like we do oftentimes, but by looking up to the heavens. And he thanks God for hearing him. And then he issues this loud command, Lazarus, come out! And it was Augustine who said that Jesus had to call Lazarus by name. Because if he didn't, all the dead would have come out of all of those graves. <laughs> because when Jesus speaks, life happens. And so when he calls out to Lazarus, he calls him by name and says, come out of the tomb. And he does. The raising of Lazarus here is this sign pointing to what will ultimately happen later. The resurrection of Jesus. It's a sign that, that Jesus is the source of, of new life. And I think we should use our language really precisely here. Uh, Lazarus wasn't resurrected, at least not in the Christian sense of the term. He was resuscitated. You might be thinking, okay, what, I mean, what's the difference? Well, to me, it's a big difference. Because every person who was raised from the dead in the Bible, whether you have the, uh, the son of the Shunammite woman, you have Dorcas, you have Eutychus, you have uh, Jairus' daughter, you know, all of these episodes where people are raised from the dead, including Lazarus, every single one of them, uh, as miraculous as that was, they all died again. Right? It was just sort of delaying the inevitable. Every single one of those people are in a grave somewhere. But Jesus Christ, according to the New Testament, he is the first fruits of the resurrection. And that means what happened in him will happen to all who believe. And that to this very day, Jesus Christ lives. He rose up on that glorious resurrection Sunday, and he lives to this day. I believe his heart still pumps. I believe he continues to live. He's not stopped drawing breath since that glorious moment when God the Father raised him back up from the grave. He lives. And that promise is extended now to every single one of us. It's a sign. But even as we said last week, signs, miraculous signs, they're only signs for people who have eyes to see them as such. The very next chapter tells us that the Pharisees, the chief priests, here's what they decided to do. That they decided they wanted to kill Lazarus because on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. Just take a minute and let that sort of sink in. Okay, Lazarus dies. Jesus raises him from the dead. Many people go to Jesus because of this. And so the chief priests have a brilliant idea. Let's just kill Lazarus. Don't, you know, you see a problem with their, their thinking, you know? They are so upset 
that people are going over to Jesus because of Lazarus, the only thing they can think of doing is to just destroy the evidence. This sign is right in front of them. They don't have the eyes to see it. The question is, do you and I have the eyes to see the work of God in front of us? When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, his final words are important, and this is where we close. Take off the grave clothes, Jesus says. Because grave clothes simply aren't fitting for people who've experienced new life in Jesus. So today, as we wrap up, I want you to think about your grave clothes. What grave clothes do you need to take off? Maybe you've worn those grave clothes of grief for far too long. I know what that's like. But you know, we have life in Christ that promises something beyond that. Maybe those are your grave clothes. Maybe that's not it at all. Maybe it's something like depression. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's worry. Maybe it's regret. Maybe some of us have been wearing those reeking garments of bitterness years after the fact. Are your grave clothes, do your grave clothes look like that? Maybe for some of us, we're, we're clothing ourselves with garments that really undermine our new identity in Christ. Garments like sexual immorality, pornography, greed and pride, and racism. Do you look for comfort in some of those flimsy, tattered rags of, of substance abuse or some sort of illicit behavior? Or even a relationship that might not be a, a, a bad thing at all, but you've made it an ultimate thing in your life. Maybe you've taken a good gift of God and you've turned it against God by making it idolatrous. Only you would know that. I'm just asking. When we start taking Jesus at his word, when we start listening to this, we, we start to realize just how many sets of grave clothes we have hanging in our closets. And unfortunately, for every single one of us, myself included, some of those grave clothes fit all too well. I want to close by letting you hear these words one more time, and I hope you hear them as words of good news and grace. Jesus says, take off the grave clothes and be clothed in something new and transformative and beautiful because I am the resurrection and the life. And to believe in those words, folks, that changes everything. We're going to stand and sing a song together in just a moment you need to do some some taking off of those grave clothes right where you are i hope you'll do that certainly we stand here at the front ready to to pray with you to talk with you if there are some things that you need to to share with this body some ways that we can encourage you and lift you up we stand ready to do that as well and certainly if there if anyone is here today needs to stand before this crowd but also before the great cloud of witnesses beyond and confess the lordship of jesus we would love to encourage you in that as well. He is the resurrection and the life. Let's stand and sing our song together. Turn.